Welcome to the Smart Connector, the podcast that helps entrepreneurs be the leader their ideal people love. Build your influence, wealth and success, attract others for all the right reasons and become a Smart Connector, the architect of your amazing business and life. Welcome to the Smart Connector podcast. My name's Jane Baylor and I've got an amazing guest for you today. Welcome, Chris Hurst. Hello, thanks for having me. Great to have you here, Chris. Now, Chris is the global CEO of Havas Creative, and we're going to talk about that in a minute because that's a very, very senior position in uh, media and advertising. And he's also the author of a book called No Bullshit Leadership. And this was actually the winner of the 2020 Business Book of the Year Awards. So that's an incredible achievement and is currently also number one in WH Smith. So congratulations, Chris. Thank you. Yes. I, like I say, I don't know how many uh, WH Smiths are open at the moment, but uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll take it wherever it comes from. Okay. So, Chris, I'd love to hear all about your your journey. How did you come to head up this amazing business? Where did it all start for you? Gosh, well, it it certainly started a long time ago now. That's uh, (laughs) that's somewhat depressingly true. Well, I suppose I had a slightly unconventional start. I did a a degree in engineering, which I guess is quite unusual for somebody to go into advertising. So I did a degree in engineering. And in fact, my first job was I worked in a a factory, basically a glass factory in St. Helens. For any of those in the Northwest will know Pilkington Glass, which was actually fascinating, to be honest with you. I actually actually really quite enjoyed it. I worked as an apprentice in the factory. But by the time I'd done that for a year and I did a four-year degree, by the end of that, the one thing I knew for certain was that I didn't want to be an engineer and I didn't want to work in a factory. So basically, I think, looking back in the through the wrong end, looking back through the wrong end of the telescope, I suppose, into the past, I guess I just decided that I wanted something that was as far away from engineering as I could possibly get. And I ended up doing advertising. So I guess that was the start. And gradually, I suppose I worked my way through my career. Okay. So for some of our listeners who don't know much about Habas, could you just explain what the business actually does and what your day-to-day role entails? The business is a, is a marketing, I guess we're a marketing services business. So we have a global network of uh, a, range, a, a range of agencies that cover everything in the marketing services spectrum from digital planning media, uh, planning and buying, digital, social, PR, creative, and increasingly these days, of course, CX, UX, e-commerce, data, you name it. So we have an array of agencies that do anything a client might want in the marketing services space based in certainly all of the major economies um, around the world. And we have three, within that, we have three divisions. We have a media division, which fairly self-explanatory we have a healthcare division and we have the creative division which is the the division the global division that i run so i'm based in london our business is actually french owned and run so my boss the, the group ceo is in paris and i guess it, well two years ago i spent an awful lot of time on planes last year i spent an awful lot of time sitting in this chair and let's see what this year brings <laughs> like all of us Exactly. Like all of us. So, so where, what would you say has been the impact of the pandemic on the uh, creative 
services industry, Chris? I mean, have you have you noticed big changes? Yeah, I think I think the pandemic, the effect of the pandemic, has been really significant. Uh, frankly, I think it's been very significant on virtually every business and every sector you could think of. Some businesses, as we see and read frequently in the press, have thrived during this period. Other businesses have sort of muddled by and other businesses, I think, have have really struggled. I think the marketing services business is, again, I'm going to generalize because actually some of our businesses have done very, very well. Certainly our healthcare business uh, practices done extremely well, but, but, but other businesses as well. But but in general, I'd say the marketing services businesses, the thing that most clearly defines their performance is the economy. I mean, that's always been true. They, they talk about marketing services as being a, a sort of a bellwether indicator. Marketing services tends to get hit first uh, because it's a very significant, essentially, or it's considered to be a discretionary spend. I guess some of us would debate that. But it's, it, it gets hit first and it comes back first. That's the typical, that's the typical shape of marketing services businesses. And, and in, in really basic terms, the pandemic hasn't been any different to that. The, it, from a business point of view, and what we saw last March was an almost instantaneous global Slowdown everywhere. And in fact, slowdown is probably understating it. I mean, I think pretty well every business, every leader, just about everywhere suddenly found themselves in totally unprecedented circumstances. So we, we saw an extremely fast uh, cuts to marketing spends basically everywhere during, I'd say, starting at the end of March. But then what we started to see, I guess, you know, end of April, middle of May, I think everybody was looking around at each other thinking, well, how much worse can it get? I mean, you know, it, it, what, when will the graph start, stop getting, you know, when will the graph start to flatten out? And I feel like that happened about May, June last year. So flat became the new growth, uh, I think, for sort of the middle, sort of June, July, August, I guess, last year. And I'm generalizing. It's like the, the shape was the same. The timing was slightly different to different economies around the world. But but basically the pattern was the same. And then what we started to see nearly everywhere was we saw a gradual return to confidence and a gradual, I guess, return to reinvestment through the back five, four or five months of last year. And I get and, and despite the fact that there continues to be significant uncertainty in most markets, or not not all, but in most markets around the world, I think that that pattern, that sort of pattern of cautious return to investment let's say is happening and obviously what we're seeing now in the UK interestingly is since the not just since the start of the vaccination program but but I think since there's started to be some real concrete evidence that that vaccination program is making a very substantial impact on the disease then I think then we've definitely seen a, a far more you know we've seen that rate of return improve the final answer, long answer to your question, but I guess it's a big question. The final thing I'd say is what, what we do still see is is relative a, a relative. It's a slightly convoluted sentence. We we still are experiencing a relative lack of visibility, and I think that's not just true of us. That that's true for us because we're a, we're essentially a consultancy business. Because that's true for our clients as well. I still think that most businesses are sort of thinking, okay, we feel like we've got a reasonable idea what the next quarter is going to bring. But we're in, you know, but, but we we find ourselves in such unprecedented times. It's it's 
you know, people are a little bit reluctant to make very hard predictions, let's say four, six, nine months ahead at the moment. I mean, of course, all brands do need to keep reinvesting, don't they? But people's um, habits have changed, haven't they, massively? And I'm sure that that must have impacted the way that your clients think about their brand activities. Well, of course, we would have, we would always advise that, that our clients should be investing in their brands. I mean, if you have a brand, you have to invest in it. That's for sure. You know, exactly. You have to work out, you, you know, because that, that's what essentially that's what brands are. Mm. Brands that pretend they don't market do market. Otherwise, you couldn't have a brand. I'd say just about every business that I talk to at the moment is thinking incredibly hard uh, about how their business has changed as a result of the pandemic. And, and we're not just talking there about how consumer behavior has shifted. Obviously, we all know that people are buying more online, for example, but it's not just that. We also see in other sectors, you know, you can't you can't go on holiday online. You might be able to book it online, but, you know, you can't go to the pub online. So there's other sectors that, that obviously have had a huge hit because they're in the hospitality sector, for example. And what does hospitality look like in the future? So, so it's not just as, as, as I, 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 not simple, but it's not just as singular as everybody's talking about e-commerce, although an awful lot of people are talking about e-commerce. I'd say a I'd make a slightly broader point, actually, Jane, which is, I think if you look at the world we're emerging into, we're obviously right now talking about COVID. But I think if you look at, at the past three years, in the past three years, we've seen four huge, huge moments of discontinuous change. And those four moments are the Me Too movement, Extinction Rebellion or the, the climate emergency, whatever phrase you want to use for that. Black Lives Matter, of course, last summer and COVID. And I think it's important if you're in a position of leadership in, frankly, whether you're in business, whether you're in a, any sort of organization, if you're a politician, that you have to be considering the, these four events, any one on their own has, has, has created huge discontinuous and permanent changes to societies around the world. And I think the implications of these four, I mean, I, I think of the implications of these four as heat. So that's humanity, ecology, and technology, and 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 it's not that it's not that the trend it's not that those not that humanity, ecology, and technology weren't issues that that organisations were thinking about. But, but but what these four mega events have done is they've taken those three factors and they've pushed them right onto the boardroom table. So now they can't just be one of many things that organisations are thinking about. They have to be fundamentally part of the business strategy and they have to belong uh, to the CEO, the CMO, the CTO. And I, and I think that, that we are, you know, we are far closer to the start than the end of the impact of, of heat, both in terms of our society, in terms of our business, the relationship business has with our society, and indeed, I think, politics and government as well. That's a fascinating, uh, fascinating summary. So out of all of those issues, do you have one that you feel is particularly close to your heart? Or do you just feel, okay, all of these things, we're going to take them all on board, we're going to champion them, we're going to incorporate them into the fabric of our business? Or is there anything that resonates particularly personally with you? 
I wouldn't say there's there's one that does. I think that, and, and in a sense, I think humanity, ecology, and technology. I I feel like they're almost like a. I feel like particularly humanity and ecology are kind of twins, in the sense that mm-hmm. from a business's point of view, they are they have fundamentally changed the way that I businesses relationship. I think with society. So I, I think now for the not for the first time, but certainly it's becoming almost accepted that changed employers' relationship with employees, employees' relationship with employers, with brands' relationship with the boardroom, with society. I mean, even the implications of ecology are suddenly if you're a brand owner, and by the way, it doesn't just apply to brands, but suddenly if you're a brand owner, you're not just thinking about your actions with relations to your consumers. What's interesting about the implications of ecology is you're thinking about your actions in in relation to everybody, people that are never going to buy your product or even heard of your product. And so I think that, you know, we'll find ourselves now, I mean, I was going to say in the future, but I think this is, this, this is, this change has happened. And I think now it's a case of society and business and organizations almost catching up. I, I think that for example, if you're going to go and buy an ice cream or you're, if you're the owner of an ice cream brand, I think suddenly you find yourself in a position where people will be making decisions around that based on not just do I like the taste of it, but they'll be asking your organization questions about your DEI strategy. They're going to be asking your organization questions about gender representation on your on your board. They're going to be asking about your your carbon footprint. And so 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 it's a it's a really profound change, I think. And it's not just about how businesses just about business's priority. I think it's about a change to business's relationship and role in in wider society. I, you know, and of course, it's a challenge for businesses, but also it's an opportunity because the businesses that get it, people want organisations to, to 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 have to share their values, and the organisations that do, I think, will will thrive. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I I think that that's been a increasing trend over the last few years as we get more transparency i think consumers do want to know the people behind the brands and they want to know their their values as you said and they want to be able to align with values not just a product so that's that's a really 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 interesting perspective on that so chris i'd love to go on to talk about your book now and what inspired you to write a book on leadership it was an accident in some ways. Uh, I was certainly, uh, it wasn't planned. So about, I guess now, probably three or four years ago, I was asked to do a presentation uh, to, a group of, uh, to a group of people on leadership. And like a, you know, like a lot of people who are asked to do presentations, I didn't think about it until about two days before. Uh, and two days before, I thought, oh, no, I'm going to do a presentation on leadership. And, and at about the same time, I discovered that that same group, the, the people organizing this conference, had asked two other people to do presentations on leadership to this same group. And I was sort of the filling in the sandwich and they were both kind of industry luminaries. So I was following luminary A, I was in the middle and then I was followed by luminary B. And and suddenly I thought, oh, this this isn't just, it's not just I've got to write a presentation. This has become competitive. I've got to try and find something different to say about the subject of leadership. So anyway, I, I, I did this, I did a presentation to them. It went quite well as, I mean, you know, 
and it went fine. And I got home uh, and I kind of lay in bed. And I remember, I think it was on a Thursday or something. I, I remember lying in bed on the Saturday morning afterwards thinking, well, I, I really quite enjoyed that. And I think there's something in what I've just talked about. I, and I thought, I, I wonder if there's a book in that. But but I didn't know at that point. You know, I thought to myself, well, it could be a book, it could be a paper, or it could be a, a thousand word, you know, article. I, I don't know. So I, I, I sat down and I thought, well, let me, let's see if I can write 10,000 words. And if, if I can write 10,000 words, let me see whether or not I think that I've got another 10,000 I could still find and so on. And, and so I suppose it, it began like that, really. And it became an extremely clarifying process and one that I think I actually learned a lot about. I actually think I learned a lot about leadership in writing the book about leadership, if you see what I mean, in terms of just making my, you know, it's very, it's very different, I think, having a, a sort of a half-formed idea is one thing. We all have those all the time. But then to sit down and think, well, I have to write a book called No Bullshit Leadership. So, I mean, I have to at least convince myself that it's not bullshit. <laughs> and I've got to try and do that for 50,000 words. So, yeah. Did you have a publisher at this point, Chris? Or, or did you just say, well, I'll write it and then I'll find a publisher? So I didn't have a publisher. No, I didn't have a publisher. I had, after I'd written about 30,000 words, I found an agent and I said to him, would you mind having a look at uh, what I've written? And he he did. And he certainly didn't say, oh, my word, this is a work of rare genius. But nor did he say, <laughs> you know, n- nor did he say I'd stick with a day job if I was you. So so he 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 didn't snap me up or the book up at that point. But he, he was encouraging enough to say, you know what, I think there's something here. Keep going which was actually all I needed at that point because it is hard work and it can feel a bit lonely. And so I I persevered. I persevered. And then he is now my agent and he then found me a publisher. So yeah, it was, the whole process was very interesting. Amazing. Chris, if, if I was to ask you, what is no bullshit leadership? What would you say? Why, why no bullshit leadership? Well, because because I think an awful lot of what we are sold and 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 the leadership industry is a huge, huge industry. I mean, you know, I I I refer to it in the book as the leadership industrial complex. You know, and that is conferences, training programs, books, business schools, consultancies. This industry makes billions, billions, and billions out of the subject of leadership, and in in a sense, have a vested interest in making it feel like it is a sort of elite knowledge available only to a chosen few and my argument my argument is is most of what we're sold is snake oil it's bullshit Uh, and the, the problem with that is well it's twofold i think firstly this bullshit gets in the way of people who are already in leadership positions from fulfilling their potential and secondly i think even worse than that it inhibits whole swathes of society from thinking that leadership is ever something that they could aspire to. And one of the first uh, sentences that I that I wrote when I sat down and started writing the book, which seems quite prescient now, given I wrote it three years ago, one of the first sentences I wrote was, we need more better leaders everywhere from our schools to our hospitals. <laughs> and, that's, and, 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 and I think that is true. And I think the, the, the bullshit around the subject fundamentally inhibits people's ability from fulfilling their potential as leaders. And, and, and my argument is that 
most leaders aren't the people we think of when we think of leaders. When we think of leaders, we tend to think of CEOs, generals, you know, prime ministers, dot-com billionaires. By my definition, I define leadership within the book. My, my definition of leadership is anybody who has people they're responsible for is a leader, whether that's four people or 40,000 people. And by that definition, there are millions of people who are, who are leaders just in the UK alone. And, you know, and we all benefit those people are able to fulfill their potential. And one of the ways of doing that is just demystifying the subject. So so my, my argument is it's difficult, but not complicated. Yeah, I, I love that idea as well, because it's very relevant to entrepreneurship. It's relevant to families. It's relevant to any kind of group, whether there's a label attached to it or not. And of course, I mean, leadership is important in families, for example, isn't it? If you're the head of a family, if you're the mother or a father, then you are a leader. You have to exercise leadership skills or not, as the case may be. And it's the same. I work with a small team. They're not my full-time employees, but I have an outsourced team. I'm very conscious that I have to bring my leadership skills to that team in order to keep them motivated. But I don't necessarily think of myself every day as a leader. Although, you know, I'm obviously bringing perhaps a bit more awareness to it than other people that maybe came from a different background. But I love that idea that everybody has the potential to be a leader. Everybody is a leader at times. It's very interesting. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I think that, you know, people people who give up their Sundays to run Sunday, you know, league football teams are leaders. People that run departments in, in schools are leaders. I mean, you know, I, I within, I, I would be quite typical in that, you know, within 18 months probably of starting, starting work, I had a couple of people that worked for me, maybe two years, but I, but I, di I didn't see myself as a leader. And, and we don't, you know, even though we pay lip service to the idea that, good organizations, good teams have leaders at lots of different levels. In actual fact, as a society, as organizations, we don't really walk that walk. We don't use that language with people. And of course, the majority of people in those positions don't see themselves as leaders either. And that's that's to the organization's detriment, their own personal detriment, and of course, also to the detriment of the people that that, that they're responsible for. And I think also, Jane, you, you can apply a lot of the principles to yourself as well, you know, you know to, to leading and managing yourself. I mean, it's not, it's, not a perfect, it's not a perfect comparison, but there are certainly some um, similarities. Yeah, so what would you say is the characteristics of somebody who is a good personal leader, leader of themselves, Chris? Oh well, I mean, I, I actually one of the things that I that I that I carefully avoid in the sense is, in the book is answering that question <laughs> because I well because I think that there isn't a I th I don't think there is a leadership type. I mean that that that's basically my argument, and certainly I would argue that I'm not particularly even if there is you know I'm not a social scientist or anything like that. So I would argue that I'm not particularly well qualified to, to comment on it. But, but fundamentally, I think there isn't a leadership type. I think there's lots of different styles of leadership. When it comes to ourselves, I don't have a very, I don't have a really good answer to that question. Again, be, but, because, but I, what I would say, though, is 
I think of us all like the counters in Trivial Pursuit. You know, when you when you play Trivial Pursuit, you have those counters, and you have to get the different color segments. Uh, and to win a Trivial Pursuit, you have to get the counter to the middle, and you have to have all one of each segment. You have lots of different color segments in the counter. And I and I think that's I that's how I think of of us as individuals and how we can be successful leaders. And by that, what I mean is that to to be a successful le- leader, you are at the same time, we are all lots of different people at the same time. So all of pretty well all of us are, are partners to somebody. We're all somebody's children. So we're, we're ch- we, you know, we're children, we're siblings, we're, we're parents, we're peers, we're bosses, we're employees. We're all these things at the same time, as well as being whatever it is, you know, bakers or photographers or, or, or tennis players, whatever we do in our spare time. And we're, we're all these things at the same time. Uh, and I think to, to sort of live a, a fulfilled, balanced life, and I think to be a successful leader, you have to try and live a balanced life. You have to try and keep a balance between these different components. And I think you have to try and maintain some degree of humility, in a sense, uh, of understanding that at different times you're all these different things. You know, I mean, I, I, I like playing tennis, you know, but I mean, you know, when I'm getting thrashed by some 18-year-old, you know, he or she you know, doesn't give a shit that I'm some agency CEO and I don't give a shit at the time as well. I just don't want to get beaten, you know. So at different times, we have to look after the different us's, you know, uh, and I think that's what matters. We have to invest in all the different versions of us, I think, to be able to be a successful leader. And 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 frank and, and crucially, I think, to be able to sustain the effort that it takes to be a successful leader because it's hard work i think it is hard work and i think to be conscious around everybody in our lives is is a massive effort for most people do you think that uh, stress plays a part in in terms of people's ability to lead because i've noticed that certainly with me for example when i'm under stress i feel as though call it if, if a leader of myself, I feel as though I become a worse leader of myself in that perhaps I make worse decisions. And I think that I become perhaps a worse leader of others because I'm looking inside rather than looking outside and thinking, how can I serve others and make a difference to them? So I don't know, I'd be really interested to, to know what, what, what your opinion is on that, Chris. Well, stress is a fact of, of life. If for, for uh, people in positions of leadership. But but frankly, I, I think you could probably argue that it's a fact of life, full stop. Yeah. It's not necessarily... I, there's all sorts of sorts of different things that cause us stress. And, and I've... And, you know, and, and, and I think, certainly in my experience, it's mostly... I mean, broadly, it's unavoidable. You can mitigate its effects, but you can't, I think hope to go through life for most of us maybe some people can but i don't think you can hope to go through life without experiencing moments of of stress sometimes you know real extreme stress i what i so i got sort of two thoughts on it first of all that's why i think this idea of 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 thinking about the different versions of ourselves and being you know and, and that i think is one of the ways of at least compartmentalizing Stress. I think. I think what is particularly exhausting, and I've been guilty of this for long parts of my career, is to allow, you know, stress in one part of my life, typically work, to bleed out and across the other aspects of, you know, my my life, and that's definitely to my detriment 
personally, and I think probably the detriment of the, the some of the other people in my life as well. The other thing that I'd say is, which I think stress does, is stress is stress is exhausting. I mean, stress is a very, very tiring and draining. And I think one of the things that as a leader is that you kind of are a bit like the Energizer Bunny. You know, you're a bit like a battery. And often you are, and teams need energy, emotional energy, as well as physical energy. And you, in a sense, I think, are the sort of energy source of last resort. You know, where it ultimately, you know, you have to, if necessary, and this isn't always the case, but if necessary, you have to be the person that provides that that energy for the team. But all of us have only got so much to give, to give. You know, no matter who we are. And so I think it's that's the other reason why I think the other pieces of our life are so important, and that that's how we. That's how we find ways to recharge. And, and I think it is possible. And again, I, I've been in this place at various points in my life where you get into a vicious circle, I think, where you're stressed, you're drained, you don't recharge properly. That makes you more stressed and more tired. And, you know, it becomes a, a vicious circle. And I, and I, it's true of all of us, but, you know, but lying awake at 3 a.m. worrying about decisions I have taken or worrying about decisions I haven't taken or things that might happen, it's never made me better at solving or dealing with those things. Now, rationally, you know, we all know that, but but actually, actually dealing with it is a different kettle of fish. But I think that's why it is important to at least try and have that, you know, try and have that that balance. And, and in fact, actually writing the book, interesting, because even though writing the book is, writing any book is, is hard work and it takes a lot of time. Actually, I found it, quite refreshing you know because it be, because it's using a different part of your brain and it's just you know you have to concentrate you haven't got time to be worrying about something else over here if you're trying to make you know that paragraph really tight and really work there isn't space in your brain to to to, to, to hold all those concerns and worries and so actually even if on a saturday morning i'd sit in three hours you know, at the end of those three hours, I'd be tired, but I'd think, oh, you know, that's that's great. I, I'm sort of tired of writing, but actually, strangely enough, I feel invigorated in other ways. So having other stuff is a great for me. It's a, for me at least, it's a good way to recharge. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm also a great fan of writing, and I find it extremely therapeutic as well because, as you said, it's just the brain's ability to just go to a place where you can just focus and you know, the world goes away and you can just think and I just love it. I really do. Were you surprised and delighted, I'm sure, when you won your award book of the year? I mean, isn't that amazing? I'll tell you a story about it, though, because <laughs> the night the night that I won, and I, I, don't, I honestly don't think I've ever, I've ever won an award for anything in my life, but at least not me <laughs> personally, up until that point. And the, the night... In fact, I think the exact, not just the night, but the exact time that they announced, it was last March, so we were already in lockdown. We, we, we were in kind of informal lockdown. I don't know if you remember, there's pretty well everybody started to stop doing things informally before formal lockdown started. So the, the, the ceremony was cancelled. We were all at home. It was being done virtually like this. But the actual announcement of me winning was at the exact same time that Boris Johnson was live on the television telling the country that, you know, we were that was it. We we're completely <laughs> locked down. So probably, you know, the, the most watched event uh, of the century probably on the TV was, was the Prime Minister saying, right, you're all locked in the house for the foreseeable future, was the exact moment. So... <laughs> 
I was like, really? Honestly? <laughs> so, oh. yeah, there we go. The event went unnoticed by the whole world except you at the time. <laughs> exactly. Me, exactly. I was watching. That was it. <laughs> so so what what impact has it had on your life or your business, if any, to, to, to have got that award? Or is it just, oh, well, that was nice to have a business as usual? The award itself is really nice to get. And, and you know, and it's, it's not, it, you know, it, it's, it's very flattering. I, but the, but the, the, I think the book has made a big difference. I mean, I mean, writing the book is, is the thing I think that's made. Well, I mean, the book was. I mean, I, I do actually. That's true. Writing the book, even just that act, actually did make a difference. But obviously, getting the book published and people reading the book and seeing the book has made a difference. I think. And you know, I, I mean, I, I, I don't really. My, my view has always been that I, people talk about having career plans and things like that, and I actually think that's mostly very, very difficult to do. It's very difficult to really plan in a structured way, unless you're going to, unless you're going to go into a very, I think maybe a very vocational. Like I want to be a pilot, I train to be a pilot, and I become a pilot. But I think it's very difficult to have a, have a proper plan, a particularly structured plan for a career. But what I think is possible to do, and the way I now have come to think about it, which I didn't used to, is I think about sort of our careers or our lives and, and our sense of satisfaction in terms of opportunity opportunities. I think, you know, the more, the more opportunities we are able to generate for ourselves, the more in control we feel. And just the more, you know, having opportunities is a great thing. I mean, that's how you can progress. Without opportunity, you can't move forward. But opportunities mostly don't just turn up. You have to create opportunities. Mm. And I see opportunities as like doors, Okay, so they're just door, you know, the more doors that you can create in front of you, the more opportunities you have. And you can look through all of those doors, which doesn't mean, by the way, you have to walk through all of them. You might say, oh, no, I don't do that. And, and, and what lies behind the doors that you go through? Well, there's just a lot more doors. And I think, you you know, that's kind of how I think about it. And, the, and writing the book and, you know, being on your podcast and all these kind of things that come of it are just... They're just about opportunities that come up. They're people you meet, they're conversations you have, they're, they're thought processes that open up. I mean, and I, and I think that's what, that's what it's done really for me. So, you know, at, at the moment, for example, I'm, I'm sort of midway through taking the, the content of the book and turning it into a training program. I'm working with some people. I mean, I don't know anything about training, but I'm working with some people that do. And we're going to develop a, essentially a, license, a licensed training program from the book. You know, and that's, and I don't know what will come of that. I mean, if, by the way, if anybody's interested who's listening, go to the website, nobullshitleadership.com, put your email in, register interest and when we've got when we've got that we'll send you an email and tell you more about it there'll be there'll be a holding page up in the next week fabulous uh, in fact by the time this light goes live there will that, that will be there so you know i don't know what will come of that but i know there's i know there's been quite a lot of already without me really having telling anybody about it you're the first probably the first public person i've told already i know there's a bit of demand from that and that's you know and that's interesting i don't know what will come of that either so yeah create opportunities create doors I love the way that you um, express that. Let's talk about leadership in marketing services and in creative businesses in general, because that's my background. As, as you know, we talked about this briefly beforehand, but I used to work for a global advertising agency. I worked in media and entertainment 
for around 20 years before I became an entrepreneur. So I'm very familiar with the challenges of, of creative um, agencies and businesses. So how does leadership, how, how does it manifest specifically in your sector? What are the particular challenges or the particular opportunities, do you think, for leaders in, in creative businesses? I think the fundamental principles are the same. I, re- I really, really fundamentally believe that. I, I don't think that the, the principles of leadership are different based on what category you, you work within. And I think that's really important for people to understand because that's, that's, why, that's one of the examples I would give of, of why there is so much kind of bullshit all over the subject because everybody's busy overcomplicating it and saying, oh, it's different in this category and that category and it's different in my business. And, I, and, and fundamentally, I think that it isn't. Right. And that's what that is a central central premise of my argument. By the way, people can agree or disagree with that, but that's my premise. I think that the creative agencies or creative businesses are obviously pe- entirely people based businesses, and, and and again, that that's not in any sense unique to them. We are basically consultancy businesses, really. We call ourselves agencies, but we're consultancies. We we instead we have this weird way of differentiate. We say, oh, there's consultancies and there's agencies, which I'm not sure is very I'm not sure is very helpful, and I think actually at the moment is increasingly unhelpful. But you know, we provide consultancy services to our clients, and you know, you know, within our just within within our business within Havas just. Just in the UK, for example, we've got probably uh, about 15 or 16 individual businesses, consultancies, and there's virtually no overlap between any of them. So it gives you that, it, that gives you an idea of the sheer breadth that there exists within marketing services when you can have, you can have kind of 15 businesses and they all exist in fairly well-defined different parts of the category, but they are all linked by, they're all linked by the fact that they are people entirely people-driven consultancy businesses. Now, I I would certainly say for businesses like that, there's only two, and, and again, by the way, I could apply this even if, I think I could convince myself this applies even if we had factories and all those other things as well, but but let's put that to one side. But I'd say in businesses like ours, there's, there's really two factors that differentiate whether you're a good business, an average business, uh, or bad business. And I think those two things are talent and culture. The only thing that that our that, that makes up our business and indeed all of our competitors is talent and culture. Yeah. And I remember I remember being put in charge of when when I first became CEO as a, a CEO, and so that was in about two thousand and ten. And and until that point, you know, I hadn't really, to my shame, honestly, I hadn't really, really, really thought about what. It was that made the business that I was the CEO of, which which at the time was a total dog of a business. It was a shit business. And what was it though? What why was our business a dog of a business? And and our competitor that was hundred yards down the road, a brilliant business. What actually was it? And I and I had this I I had this kind of really what I found was a liberating thought in a sense, which was all consultancies, all agencies are just buildings full of people. That's all they are. We have a building with people in it. They have a building with people in it. None of us even own the building. Mm-hmm. These days, we're not even in the same building, right? Yeah, so yeah. But we're just, buildings, we're just buildings with people. And so what's the difference between the two? And the difference is just talent and culture. And ultimately, I actually think the real, the real driving difference is culture. 
Yeah, agree. And again, this isn't this isn't uh, rocket science. Not many people are going to go. Oh God, nobody's ever said that before. But 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 I think that culture is is a misunderstood concept. Is a lot of cynicism around the word culture in an organizational sense. And for me, culture is the you know people think of culture as being this soft, squishy, soft, squishy thing. You know, you'll go to people's websites, okay, and they'll say, oh yeah, we've got a great culture. We provide fruit at lunch times and all this stuff. And that's got nothing to do with culture at all. Culture in an organizational sense is the environment a leader creates in order for their teams to outperform. That's what organizational culture is. And if you if you're creating culture that allows your teams to outperform, you, you know you're going to win by definition. Because when we think of virtually all businesses, virtually all businesses, I, by virtually I mean ninety nine point nine nine percent, maybe more businesses. Are not haven't got anything unique about them in terms of their product. What they're trying to do is they're trying to do a common thing better than the competition. Virtually all businesses are trying to do that. And, and then you say, well, how? How can my business do a common thing better than the competition? Well, you know what? It's talent and culture. Ultimately, that's the thing that's going to drive you to be able to achieve that. And I think that's that is absolutely true of creative agencies and every every business in the consultancy space. I, I mean, that totally resonates with me because I, you know, I, I work for a few different different businesses and they were very, very markedly different in terms of the level of attention, should we say, to detail in, in terms of that whole culture and whether they really thought about it and whether they made the effort to give people a good time, really, because at the end of the day, there has to be a balance between expectation and actually treating people as valued human beings and i think without culture there's often a sort of exploitation cynicism that there's the conditions that make people feel you know they just don't get feel inspired about about going to work and doing their best so i know that totally i totally understand that well of course all all organizations have a culture mm. i mean they all have one the question is, do they have a culture that allows them to outperform? I mean, is that is the culture something that's, you know, you take somebody from team A, you put them in team B. If team B has got an effective organizational culture, that person will perform, will, will be able to perform and contribute to the team's objectives at a different level to what they would have been if that culture wasn't an effective culture. And that's, you know, it's a real that's why it's such a powerful thing. We've all probably on a personal level and or we've seen it happen to other people that you can take the same individual and they, and they can work at two different companies or in two different teams within the same company and they can appear to be, be almost different people and we've experienced that ourselves our ability to sort of perform at our best is so influenced by the culture we find ourselves in and you know we spend a lot of our time as leaders in organizations of all sort of all types talking about whether person A is, you know, we, we evaluate people all the time, right? We have this, is this person a rising star? Are they are they in the right, you know, what do we think about this person? How do we score this person's performance? But what we so often forget is before you can evaluate anybody's performance, you have to think of two other factors. First of all, are they in, an, are they in a culture that allows them to perform at their best? And second of all, are they clear what it is that's being expected of them? 
So, you know, and so often people, those two things just are not in place. And so, so when I think of the leaders that work for me, the CEOs that, that, that work for me, and like a lot of agency networks, we've got, there's quite a lot of, quite a lot of CEOs around the world that work for me. My part of the task is to say, is that person, you know, can I do my best? To what extent am I able to create an environment, a culture that allows that person to perform? And second of all, is that person absolutely clear what it is that we want them to deliver, what we want them to do? Then, only then can you say, well, I've kind of done my bit. You know, now you've got to do your bit. And, And I'll say one other thing, actually, you mentioned cynicism. For me, cynicism there's a lot of cynicism around the world word organizational culture. There's a lot of cynicism around values and all those kind of things that companies like to talk about. The reason the cynicism, I think, is for me, cynicism exists in the gap between what you say and what you do. That, that, that's where cynicism grow, thrives. I think the reason there's a lot of cynicism around words like culture and in an organizational sensible values is because, of course, a lot of organizations say what they, you know, say what their culture is, but everybody in that organization knows that that's bullshit. And so there's this, so yeah. there's this, and so cynicism isn't inevitable. The way you deal with cynicism is you close the gap between what you say and what you do. Amazing. I, I just love that. So on that note, uh, Chris, I think our interview is drawing to a close. All I can say is that it has been such a pleasure to interview you today. We've had such a fascinating conversation. So if anybody wants to get hold of your book, is it on Amazon? I mean, is that the best place to go at the moment? During March, if you're listening to this in March, I think, yeah, I think you've got to go to Amazon. It's available in uh, paperback. All right. Uh, yeah. Okay. Although you may be elsewhere in the world, it's available. It's available globally, but it's available as an audio book and an ebook. So you know, in all the in all the modern ways. Okay, fantastic. And if people want to find out more about your ideas and about the new leadership program, uh, where do they go again? So go to nobleshitleadership.com. There is a website there already, but there will be a there will be an opportunity for you to log your details. Uh, we're looking for trainers who are interested in becoming affiliates for the program. We're looking for corporates who would like to to have their own internal teams trained, and we're looking for individuals who'd like to go through the program. So whether you're a trainer who wants to come and partner with us, whether you're a corporate who wants your teams training, whether you're just an individual who'd like who'd like to improve their leadership skills, come along. It'll be clear where you'll be signposted. Give us your details, and um, we'll be in touch. That sounds great. Well, thank you again, Chris. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, I I wish you a very successful journey with that. Thanks, Jane. Lovely to talk to you. Bye for now. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Smart Connector podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, why not head over to janebaylor.com and order a copy of my free report on building your personal brand. I'd love to connect with you on social media. And finally, don't forget to like and subscribe to my podcast so that you never miss a show. Thanks for listening in and see you soon.